The detailed work of Congress is done not by members, but rather by the 30,000-odd staff members. And right now, a group of overworked and probably underpaid minions are what they call conferencing over one of the most important yearly laws, the National Defense Authorization Act. My next guest used to be one of those minions. Among other things, she was senior defense advisor to Maine Republican Senator Susan Collins. Now an attorney with Covington and Burling, Michelle Pierce joins me in studio. Ms. Pierce, good to have you with us. Great to be here. And we should say that you were also working in national security. You work for the Army Department. And so this is still part of your life's work, fair to say? Absolutely fair to say. In my prior position in the Department of Defense, I was the department's lead attorney for legislation. So in that capacity, even after having left the Hill, I continued to work on that program, which represents one of the largest programs in the federal government with literally hundreds of proposals that end up in the final bill each year at the request of the Department of Defense and, you know, obviously approved sure. through OMB and, you know, by the president. But inevitably, a lot of those provisions in the bill actually stem from requests from the department itself. And before we get into some of the themes in the NDAA, which has yet to be worked out as we speak here, but what was it like? I mean, what really goes on in the meetings, and especially in the conferences, and especially in, in one of those years like now, where everybody seems to be worlds apart, and they don't like each other very much, one side and the other? Well, the committees themselves are really governed by a tradition that they hold dear, which is bipartisanship. And it's really, really important when you're a professional staff member on the committees to live by those principles, because at the end of the day, the NDAA is a must-pass bill. And one of the reasons why it gets enacted each year, you know, it's been more than 60 years at this point that we've had a defense bill pass. It's really kind of driven by the expectation from the members that the staff will do the work to get that bill done. And frankly, a lot of the staffers are longtime staffers, and they have relationships with one another, both on the House and the Senate side. Many of us, when I was on the committee, had worked together in the Department of Defense or in the Air Force. And so I think that at its most basic, the just guiding principle as staff are conferencing various provisions, even very potentially controversial provisions, that they're going to work together and they're going to try to find common ground when they can. And how does the work take place? Does everyone sit in a conference room with cigarettes being stubbed out and broken coffee cups with notebooks open and pens and pencils? I mean, well, on line 56 on page 3000, you say this. How about if we say where to for as to codicil 16 point B? What goes on? So the framework is really kind of constructed around a professional staff member's portfolio. So I was the staff lead for the readiness subcommittee. So every provision that fell into the readiness portfolio were the provisions that I would personally negotiate with my Senate counterparts. And so that's how the initial conversations are started. You have a portfolio, you have certain issues that you are familiar with and are working on behalf of the members, and you do, in fact, sit at a table with pen and pencil in hand, and you basically have a spreadsheet with all the provisions that you are responsible for. And the tradition, again, on the committee is, like I said, to find common ground, but it's also to 
really focus on the significant policy ramifications of each of the measures that you are negotiating. Right. At some level, there is a public purpose in all of this and not simply a negotiation over paragraphs, your guy, my guy type of thing. Correct. And frankly, my view was that because you have the House position and the Senate position on all of these different policy issues, it really is important to walk through each word, to discuss the ramifications of each word that we're either inserting or perhaps one issue might be to subtract or to you know strike a provision or a certain word in a potential you know law that could sure. be very deleterious to our national security posture. And I exaggerated. It's only 2,000 pages, the NDAA. And do you imagine right now they're working nights and weekends? Yes. Staff are committed right now to producing what will eventually be the NDAA for fiscal year 2024. And just to get back to how those specific provisions are negotiated, each chamber goes to the conference table and advocates for the enacted bill that was passed in each chamber. So even your own personal views on what the policy should be are really not at issue. It's the House passed a bill. The provisions in that bill are the provisions that, as staff, we advocated for, and we took you know that charge very seriously because eventually we would report out to the members you know what the outcomes of these types of negotiations were. And also to kind of just put a pin in it, the staff negotiations are very cordial, even on very contentious issues. And it would not be surprising on any given day over the weekend for somebody to bring in food for the team, conducting the negotiations. Like I said, a lot of the teams are you know, professional staff members who've been on the committees sure. for many years and have worked through very contentious bill cycles in the past. I'll get the bean soup, but i got to run down to the Senate now before they close the cafeteria type of thing. We're speaking with Michelle Pierce. She specializes in national security, now as an attorney at Covington and Burling. And let's get into this year's bill. What are three or four, do you think, are the top themes now that worries Congress and somewhere buried in there worries the Defense Department? So China, China, and China. (laughs) You cannot underestimate the effect of the geopolitical landscape related to China. And it's not just that there are provisions prohibiting various activities, you know, procurements with China, supply chain, you know, security measures really focused on stemming a lot of malign activities undertaken by the Chinese government. But ultimately, you have to understand that that geopolitical landscape is pushing really a whole new line of provisions year after year. You see it particularly during COVID. Supply chain security, you know, that became a huge priority and you continue to see that. But it's really, you know, the situation with China, Taiwan, and it's oddly enough, you know, an area where there is significant bipartisan agreement as to the approach. And so you have legislators working together to try and fully understand what more we could be doing on a year to year basis to ensure, you know, that we are postured in a way that we are limiting our risks stemming from the situation with 
our relationship with China and their right, and that strategic relationship then devolves into a lot of areas. And say, for example, well, great, we've got eleven carriers and they only have three, except a third of our fleet. You name the platform is always in dry dock where we don't have enough space to fix them. Therefore, there's this ten-year backlog of ship repair. And when you do repair a ship, a big one, it takes two years out of commission, et cetera, et cetera, which gets into the industrial base, the acquisition. So it does permeate pretty widely, doesn't it? It really does. And, you know, I would add to your list workforce, a skilled workforce that can help our country basically onshore activities and the manufacturing pipelines that, to your point, ensure that we have a ship that is ready to be deployed at a moment's notice. But that, as having a skilled workforce has certainly been a concern. And you see a lot of focus also on skilled workforce development programs that the department is focused on to ensure that we have the skilled people who can actually put together <laughs> and craft not just a ship, but an airplane. And, you know, you think of all of our major acquisition platforms and programs Each one of those programs requires a very skilled workforce, and it takes a really long time, for example, to train and develop a welder's skill, for example. Right, and that's the workforce both for DOD itself, the civilian and uniform workforce development, and the defense industrial base workforce, too, fair to say. Absolutely, that's right. Yeah, everyone thinks airplanes, they look simple from the outside, but just open a panel on one of them and look inside and see how complicated this stuff really is. All right, so they'll get it done because they get it done by the end of the year, basically. Absolutely. And so just to kind of give you a little bit more perspective on how the conference process wraps up with respect to these negotiations, there inevitably are, at the end of these types of negotiations, a number of provisions that the staff just couldn't reach agreement on. So those provisions are tabled and actually briefed to the leaders on the committee, the staff directors in both the House and the Senate, and then also the leadership of the committee, so the chairs and the ranking members. And in those instances, again, it's very bipartisan, very collaborative, you have you know, members of Congress who've been working together for many, many years in various capacities and on various committees. They take the charge very seriously that you know, they are responsible for the security of the Department of Defense, the United States. They inevitably will try to find a compromise if there isn't a clear solution that is going to satisfy both parties and both chambers. You have given us some great insight. Michelle Pierce specializes in national security. She's an attorney at Covington and Burling and former Hill staff member and former defense civilian employee. Thanks so much for joining us. You bet. Thanks so much for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And, that, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, 
And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So 
when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.